0: Hey, Stephen here. This week, we're serving up another episode of The Interchange. Shell Khan and I are talking to Matteo Jaramillo, one of the most important people behind Tesla's energy storage strategy. You may remember this podcast used to be behind a paywall. Well, no more, thanks to our launch sponsor, AES Energy Storage. AES Energy Storage is a world-leading provider of grid-scale storage projects. It is part of AES Corporation, which owns $36 billion in energy assets and serves electricity to over 9 million people worldwide. Listeners of this show know that we are entering a new era. It's the electrification of everything, and the grid needs to keep up. That means making it into a more distributed, flexible, and cleaner network. AES is helping unlock the true power of the electricity system with Advancion. Advancion is a battery-based energy storage platform that helps utilities modernize their power systems rapidly and at a much lower cost than traditional infrastructure investments. Advancion can handle any application, and it's always instantly available without the need to burn fuel or invest in expensive peaking generation or other infrastructure designed to meet flexibility or reliability needs. It's time to unlock the full potential of the electric power system. That means building a new energy network, transforming the grid with energy storage, accelerating renewables, and electrifying everything. That is the vision and mission of AES Energy Storage. Learn more about AES's offerings by visiting aesenergystorage.com interchange. You can find the link in our show notes. And if you like this episode, and I think you will, particularly if you're into storage, remember to subscribe to The Interchange. Uh, Also, listen to last week's interview with Lisa Francis of Advanced Energy Economy about New York's utility reformation efforts. That was a good one. You can find links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and our RSS feed right there in the show notes. If you don't use iTunes, then just copy and paste the RSS feed into the podcast player of your choice to subscribe. And thank you so much to AES Energy Storage for being the launch sponsor for The Interchange. Again, AESEnergyStorage.com slash interchange. And now let's get on to the show. This is The Interchange a weekly conversation about the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm GTM Editor-in-Chief Stephen Lacey in Boston with my co-host, GTM Research Senior VP Shale Khan. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Who are we talking to this week? We are talking to Mateo Jaramillo, uh, which is a
1: name that is going to be familiar to anybody who runs in energy storage circles, perhaps not outside. Mateo uh, spent a long time at Tesla and basically stood up Tesla's stationary energy storage Group. Um, And so he was there before doing the stationary energy storage thing for them. He was directing their powertrain business development group. And even before that, he was doing commercial behind the meter energy storage deployments in New York uh, way back in, you know, a decade ago. So he's an OG for energy storage.
0: He is an OG. As he likes to say, he likes to be on the vanguard of industries, which is why he chose storage early on in his career, and which is why he's moving on to thinking about seasonal storage, which we'll talk about. Um, We cover a lot of ground in this one. It's kind of a panoply of storage topics. We talk about his early industry experience, Mateo's time at Tesla, his thoughts on where the storage business models are headed, and this new passion for seasonal storage. First, before that, the reading list. What kind of wonky material has got you turning the pages this week? Well, this one I really
1: like partially because it, it doesn't read as wonky as it kind of is. There was a paper that came out uh, last week that was published by the Columbia SEPA uh, Center on Global Energy Policy, so from Columbia University, called Can Coal Make a Comeback? And it was written by Trevor Hauser, who's the uh, partner at Rhodium Group, also was a the energy policy advisor to Hillary Clinton during the campaign, Jason Bordoff, who's the head of that Columbia Center on Energy Policy, and Peter Masters, who also works at Rhodium Group. And it's, first of all, it's just like a very readable document on the state of coal in the U.S. Um, it just, it reads really cleanly. It's, it's very clear. And the other thing that I like about it a lot is that it attempts, at least for the first time that I've seen, to quantify the impact of various factors on coal's decline in the US. And so the headline result is that they find that 49% of the cause for the decline in coal in the US over the last few years has come from cheap natural gas pricing. 26% has come from just lower than expected demand for coal, that being both from the electricity sector in the US and from exports primarily to China. Um, And then renewable energy uh, is about 18%. And Finally, environmental regulations were basically negligible. Um, they estimate something like 3% of the cause of the coal decline at, at most would have been caused by environmental regulations. So that kind of runs counter to especially the, the rhetoric that you hear out of the Trump administration right now, which is that you know they're imagining – that the regulations like the M.A.T.S. rule and a clean power plan potentially have been the things that have killed coal. And I think a lot of us in the clean tech industry have been sort of shouting, no, it's mostly natural gas. And this sort of backs that up quantitatively through a pretty interesting methodology.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, and it's nice to have some numbers tied behind it. Speaking of numbers, Ben Geeman at Axios, who writes the Axios Generate newsletter, wrote about coal jobs this morning. And uh, Axios found the newest Labor Department data, and they showed that coal mining jobs dropped 8% in the first quarter of 2017. So coal jobs continue to decline. And of course, if you pay attention to the news cycle, every single CEO in coal generation and utilities and in coal mining says, we don't expect the jobs to come back. Really, these regulations will improve the bottom line of coal companies, but uh, not the jobs picture.
1: Yeah, that's the other thing I liked about this this piece that SEPA published is it also tries to model out what a sort of best and worst case scenario in the future might be for coal in the U.S. And they find that in the best case scenario that they can model, they project a pretty modest recovery to 2013 levels of coal demand, which is a little under a billion tons a year. Which really is, is a quite a modest recovery and wouldn't bring back all of those jobs. And then the worst case scenario, output would fall to about 600 million tons a year. So that's 40% lower than the best case scenario. Um, and basically, in any of those scenarios, they're estimating employment in for coal mining uh, being basically below anything that had been experienced before 2015. So you know, again, the argument that coal jobs are just not coming back no matter
0: what. Well, my reading list is a bit different. I've been um, doing some background reading this week on three very powerful women in energy that I'm going to soon have the privilege of interviewing on stage. Sunrun CEO Lynn Jurich, Solar Energy Industries Association CEO Abby Hopper, who just took over the reins there, and Green Mountain Power CEO Mary Powell. I'm going to be talking to Lynn and Abby on stage at our very own Solar Summit, which is coming up on May 16th. And We're also going to have Lynn as a guest on this podcast from that event. So we've got some good material coming up. And I'm going to be talking to Mary Powell on stage at the Clean Energy Trust Challenge in Chicago next week. And assuming that audio turns out well, we will probably feature that on the show. So plenty of good material coming up with some of the smartest women in this industry. Now let's turn our attention to Mateo Jaramillo, the former VP of Products and Programs at Tesla Energy, We started this conversation off on a lighter note, talking about his background in theology. Matteo has a master's in theological studies from Yale, and he explained what dedicating himself to that path taught him about how to carefully craft his career, which I liked. And after injecting a bit of humor, he turned it into a valuable piece of career advice. And then we just went from there.
2: You might say, Stephen, that that I've always focused on higher power systems. There you uh, oh. <laughs> oh. go. <laughs> another another uh, bad one uh, <laughs> in that same vein would be to say that I've uh, ignored profits for a long time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a better one, actually. I like that one. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, no, it was, uh, you know, I do get asked about that a lot. And, and not just sort of as a joke for for an introductory, uh, you know, speaking engagement, but, um, You know, I find a lot of people try are trying to figure out what to do with their careers, especially younger people. Um, You know, maybe you've you've only got a couple years under your belt, and um, so I've had a lot of conversations with people uh, just over the course of doing what I do in the field that I'm in, uh, where people sort of you know, with Bill Wilderman, ask me uh, how I went from theology into um, into energy, much less energy storage. And and what I say is that um, the main skill that I picked up at at divinity school studying theology, uh, was one of, uh, practiced, um, discernment. And so basically figuring out what I wanted to work on. And, uh, what I say is that, uh, when I realized, uh, you know, given the tools that, that I developed at, at Yale, um, through the discernment process that the vocation of the ministry was not for me, uh, I took those same skills and applied it to what I did want to work on. Um, and arrived at energy and renewable energy and within that storage. And it sounds it sounds a little bit uh, wacky maybe, um, but I, before I was done with uh, my master's in theology, I knew I wanted to work on storage. My undergraduate degree is in economics, a little more traditional. Um, and specifically within economics, I focused on energy economics and environmental justice issues. And um, so, so when I sort of, again, realized that I wasn't gonna go into the ministry, um, uh, I sort of reverted back to those routes and thought hard about what I wanted to do there and this was in 2003 2004 you know first wind was was picking up some news and you started to see more um, uh, solar deployments uh, coming online you could already start to track the the cost declines there and so I sort of made a sector bet which was that renewable energy was was ultimately going to succeed uh, and and that if it was going to succeed then storage would sort of by necessity, play a critical role in that as well. Uh, I wanted to be the vanguard of something. So I picked storage and I found a, a two, two co-founders uh, of a very small company in New York to, to hitch onto and, and uh, sort of bluff my way into the job um, and went from there. That was 2004. And so, you know, given my own career path, I, I do really encourage people to, um, one, be very mindful about what they do want to work on. Uh, because you you can't sort of fall in, generally speaking, it's a mistake to think you're going to fall into a career that you really enjoy. Um, You have to be thoughtful about it, and you have to um, spend time really thinking about it and, you know, to use that word, discern what you want to work on. Uh, And I ran into Yetming Cheng, the founder of A123, maybe like a year and a half ago or something at a conference, and he said, oh, Mateo, how's it going? And, uh, you know, we just started chatting, and somebody else came up and and introduced uh, himself, and so the three of us were chatting, and Yet turned to this other guy, and he said, do you know this guy? Do you know what i said, I tell all my students about him. He has a degree in theology, and now he works in batteries. I tell them, you can do anything you want.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you can make it in the storage industry, you can do literally anything. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> and that
0: yes. that company you referenced was Gaia Power Technologies, right? You were a CEO yeah. Yeah, over right. there for almost five years. And, and they were doing behind-the-meter storage energy management as early as 2002? Uh, yeah, 2002. Three really, 2003,
2: 2004. Uh, the first projects that that we did uh, were done under uh, um, basically projects through NYSERDA. So we got um, grants from NYSERDA to do uh, behind the meter demand reduction. Um, we had three stores, uh, three Starbucks in Manhattan, uh, the W Hotel, a couple other places, uh, and we were using lead acid batteries and Xantrix inverters uh, and f- Fluke meters and. You know, it was all very, very kludgy and wires running all over the basement of Starbucks, and um, but it worked, and um, you know that was sort of the, f- the first indication that you could actually make batteries uh, pencil in the real world. Um, at, at least if you assumed some reliability out of the equipment, which which we didn't have. So um, yeah, that that's how that's how it got started. Um, a lot of credit to uh, to NYSERDA first for uh, being forward thinking and, and um, supporting those kinds of programs at the time. Uh, we were also doing grid edge stuff. Um, so we had a, a project with Delaware uh, County Co-op, which is an upstate um, county in, in New York. And uh, that was using a plug power uh, fuel cell combined with a battery system to improve uh, grid edge sort of voltage and, and frequency issues uh, that, that one of these small rural communities was having. Um, so, uh, again, but for the reliability of the fuel cell, the, the project was, uh, was at least pointed in the right direction.
1: To what to what do you ascribe the sort of slow growth of energy storage? Given that you were doing projects that, with some nicer to funding, penciled in what did you say two thousand three, two thousand four? So we're like fourteen years on, and only in the past couple of years have you started to see the market really pick up. And even there, it's it's thanks to state level incentives in other states. I mean, you know, you could if you try to compare it to solar, you know, you had a a bunch of early deployments and you know, two thousand five onward in California, thanks to the California Solar Initiative, and then it really started to build momentum. I think pretty quickly. And storage seems like it's taken a longer time to get there.
2: No, I, I definitely agree. Um, and I would say you can attribute that to a number of different factors, but but primary among them, so the state incentive program from NYSERDA was not enduring. So they were it was a one off project. Uh, it's not like there was a pot of money that that anybody could go after, um, like you had under the CSI program uh, for for solar in California. Um, and two, uh, it was a very narrow geographic um, spot where that worked. So like I said, Zone J in Manhattan. Um, and and those are uh, pretty unique businesses and pretty unique um, operating environments there. Uh, you can't just sort of take what you learn there and, and immediately extrapolate to uh, a much broader swath of the country. Um, and then three, uh, the equipment um, just at the time took, took a lot longer to, uh, to sort of advance. I mean, we, at the time we were using lead-acid batteries and you know, these were concord uh, deep in theory deep cycle batteries um but uh you know there was there was really very little thought given to sort of complete balance of system and the company i was at at the time was trying to do that thing but it was a, a pretty small company and um you know we were trying to mix it in with uh backup power provision to residences and um you know it just it, it was a very very small niche market at the time and some of these uh, broader structures that, that solar benefited from were never really put in place uh, for the for storage. Uh, primary, I would say, perhaps with justification, because you know, regulators and and other uh, sort of incentive um, drafters uh, realized that that the technology was pretty immature still. Uh, I mean, there were no sort of purpose built inverters for this. There were no purpose built batteries for this, uh, and and the markets were just just sort of waiting for for costs to come down. At the time, lithium-ion, of course, was far, far too expensive to use. Um, and I think that that, that particular uh, path um, was not even really viable. Uh, certainly nobody, nobody considered that it, it would be where it is today. Uh, and so, uh, you know, from a technology perspective, it just, it just wasn't there.
0: So then how did you uh, end up at Tesla as director of powertrain development? And was stationary storage always a part of the plan of that group?
2: Uh, yeah, so first of all, the, um, uh, the prior company I was at, Chiropractic Power Technologies, uh, sort of founded on the, on the shores of 2007, and, and when the residential uh, part of the business went away, then, then the commercial piece couldn't sort of sustain itself. And so, um, uh, it, you know, I left the company, it sort of wound down, uh, and I ended up um, just doing some consulting in the field. And uh, one of the folks that, that I was sort of consulting at the time uh, was a, a venture capitalist um, who had uh, – he was part of DFJ and, and of course, they were an early investor at Tesla. And uh, so I was sort of providing guidance on, on what energy storage was was looking like as a market. Of course, back then, uh, there was a lot of early enthusiasm for, for uh, clean tech and for batteries in particular, uh, and I generally was not uh, optimistic about a lot of w- – what you were seeing at the time. And uh, finally, this guy said, well, you know, what What should I be looking for? And it started to tick off all the things I thought you needed to be successful in energy storage. Uh, and he said, well, I don't know if they're interested, but Tesla's got all that stuff. You might want to talk to them. And so he put me in touch with JB Straubel, um, who, of course, is the CTO, one of the co-founders. And uh, JB has a passion for all things energy. Um, and uh, so, so almost immediately, we, we started having great conversations about what you could do with batteries on the grid. Um, and so I, he invited me out, uh, and, and, uh, I was interviewing, you know, in the middle of an interview day, uh, getting grilled about how I was going to be able to sell more batteries to Daimler. And I, I had to sort of stop the interview and say, I, to be candid, I don't know anything about the automotive market. Uh, and JB sort of sheepishly said, Oh yeah, I, I forgot to tell you, like all that stuff we were talking about, we're, we want to get there someday. But in the meantime, you know, the real work is right now on the powertrain business development side of things. I said, okay, well, I can, I could do that. Uh, so that that was how I came to Tesla. Um, but yeah, as of day one when I got there, I started to think about um, how to build up the station storage effort. And you know, thinking there is pretty simple, and al- along the lines of what I had mentioned previously, which is, um, if the company was going to be successful on the vehicle side, uh, then we knew sort of by definition we'd end up with a compelling battery uh, from an energy density standpoint, from a cost standpoint, from a longevity, performance, durability standpoint. And uh, that would be applicable for the good markets as well. And uh, so we started to lay the groundwork for that back in two thousand
1: and nine. can i can I just ask about the limitations that you see in that line of thinking where you know basically now, I mean, thanks to Tesla largely, I think, um all of the major, Car companies who are developing electric vehicles are also sort of trying to spin off stationary storage businesses using their proprietary battery technology that they're using in their EVs. And I just wonder whether that sort of dual purpose uh, usage for a technology that was designed for mobile energy storage, not for stationary storage in the first place, whether we're going to end up finding ourselves hitting some limit where. You know we we actually don't have the technology that's needed to serve all the purposes that energy storage can yeah uh,
2: well so the the idea certainly from Tesla's perspective um, you know when, when we started the effort there was was not to just take the vehicle battery per se and then you know slap it in a new enclosure and put it on the wall it was to uh, meaningfully adapt uh, what was what was already there uh, in the right ways for the grid markets and and that that's a number of different ways of course it's um, directly relevant for which power electronics you're using um, and also which enclosures and those kinds of things mechanical systems electrical systems uh, but also at the chemistry level as well um, you know and this is this is public information but you know the car uses an nca formulation um, for the cathode in the in the battery uh, and on the grid side of things um, it's been an nmc uh, uh, formulation so you know you don't just sort of blindly take what uh, has been used on the automotive side and, and use it the and and br- frankly, the term lithium ion is is probably too broad at this point. Um, it doesn't really sort of convey the the differences in the in the formulations um, that are out there in the market today. And uh, that was always you know certainly the approach within Tesla. So I, and I assume that that the other automotive companies uh, understand that difference as well. Uh, they should. And uh, so I, I would say that that what is happening there is you're you're seeing. Um, an attempt to reuse as much sort of investment as possible, but not also uh, just doing a copy paste uh, and assuming that things will go well there.
0: So I want to talk a bit about the business development around a certain technology, which of course for Tesla's lithium ion, you said in that initial interview with JB Straubel that you guys talked a lot about stationary stores and he said, well, that's a couple of years off. Let's worry about the electric vehicle powertrain. And even co-founder and former CEO Martin Eberhard talked about the Tesla Energy Group and identified early on the need to build a stationary storage business. So Tesla and you before Tesla had been thinking about this business for a long time. How do you go from inception to executing on something like developing the products you did and building the gigafactory? How does that, what what can you tell us about, how that came together um, underneath yeah. your group: well I mean
2: first of all n- none of that comes together if if uh, of course Elon doesn't um, you know sort of set the tone for what he wants to happen at the company which is you know m- meaningful large impact uh, uh, businesses so um, you know the conversation that JB and I had early on uh, again assumed success on the vehicle side uh, and assuming success on the vehicle side we had to prepare um, for success on the on the grid storage side of things as well. Um, but of course, you know, at the time 2009, nobody had ever breathed the word gigafactory quite yet. Um, and so, you know, in that environment, and at the time, Tesla was a couple hundred people. I don't remember exactly. Um, and, and obviously heads down on making sure that the roadster was going to work right. Um, but the only way I know how to do it is is step-by-step. And, and one of the um, ways that we got started, um, within, uh, within Tesla um, and this was, we used to sort of conceive of of the company as uh, having a powertrain group or powertrain division, uh, you know, sort of informally anyway. And um, within there, w- w- which is where I was uh, obviously focused, um, the way that that we got started uh, was similar to what I had done in New York, uh, which was to use a grant. In this case, it was from the uh, California Energy Commission, um, also under the CESI program, uh, under the too many acronyms, under the um, research, RD, RD&D, so the Research Development Deployment Program. Uh, and so uh, this is a program that uh, we did jointly with um, SolarCity. They were the prime. Tesla was the sub. And it was to take uh, one of the uh, smart batteries. Uh, th- these are the batteries that Tesla was producing at the time for Daimler uh, in their smart program, and to uh, modify it appropriately for uh, grid usage and to deploy a number of those. And so that was, um, you know, highly traceable sequestered money that that went, had to go directly uh, to fund people working only on this project. Uh, and that's how I was able to hire the first um, couple of engineers and, you know, not not have to walk around with my hand out and, and ask the company for money at the time when, of course, uh, it, it was extremely resource scarce. So that that's how we got started. Um, you know, once you get started, you start to figure out all the holes and all the paths you need to take. Uh, and, and that was uh, very much a I'll call it a Powerwall-like product. It was a residential battery product, um, but pretty early on, we also started to think about uh, commercial, industrial project products as well. And that's um, when we started our our work uh, simultaneously on on the much larger uh, systems, what, what eventually became the Powerpack too. So it's not like we we didn't think about the entire market from the beginning. We absolutely did. Uh, we just had to start somewhere, and that was easiest to start with the the smaller residential product.
0: And was full in house product design development, always part of the plan?
2: Yes, absolutely. At, at Tesla, of course, <laughs> there's a strong preference for building everything here. And uh, and so that that was certainly always the intention there.
1: So you started with residential, which is an interesting one, just in that, you know, f- sort of the economic case for residential storage is still probably the, the furthest off of the market segments. You know, you've got in, Grid scale storage, you've got regulatory issues, participation in wholesale markets and things like that that you mentioned. And there's obviously an economic question depending on what the use case is. Commercial energy storage, you've got demand charges in in various places that you can play with uh, and sometimes kind of value stacking using some kind of grid service. And then residential, you know the business model in the US at least just isn't quite there yet because you don't have that much of an incentive. There aren't big differentials in time of use pricing. There isn't so much of an incentive to self-consume solar, if you have that on your roof just yet. And I'm curious, if there's, I guess there's a bit of a debate, I think, um, that pertains mostly to the U.S., but to a lesser extent globally about residential energy storage, about whether it really is supposed to be an economic value proposition for customers or whether it's supposed to be about reliability and resiliency. And it doesn't actually matter that much whether it's saving you money uh, in the short term, which is a, a sort of distinction from how solar was built up as, as you know, the solar took off for residential when it was about savings, not about being green or getting off the grid for that matter. So I'm curious whether you think that energy storage is just a little more immature right now for residential and it heads in that same direction, eventually becomes all about the economics or whether, you know, the value proposition will always be built around reliability.
0: And I'd like to quibble a little bit with your characterization there, Shale, because clearly the early adopters were about being green and there is a segment of customers who are interested in solar because they highly dislike their utility. So there are a bunch of different factors. But that's but- not,
1: I mean, that is not how the residential solar market has scaled. I'm, I'm sure that for everybody, almost everybody who's installing residential solar now, they they still feel good. I mean, they probably wouldn't do it if it were like a diesel generator that we're saving them money or something like that. You know, the, the fact that it's solar matters, but we have 1.3 million residential solar installations in the U.S. right now, and I would bet you that a million of those wouldn't have happened if, it weren't, if there weren't a strong economic value proposition for those customers.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think and, that's fair. And
2: I would say that the same um, forces are at play for energy storage. But as to why we started there, I mean, it, it, the only reason we started with the energy storage um, going into residential uh, was because, one, it was a, a simpler product to, to just get out there and be done with. Uh, from an engineering standpoint, but also because uh, you can always find individuals who will want these kinds of things and sort of be are the early adopters and you know we needed adopters it's a lot easier to find those folks as you were mentioning who you know they disdain for the utility or just uh, desire to have the newest latest greatest or uh, you know they want to go green uh, will will allow you to put <laughs> new batteries into their homes now that market is going to be relatively niche as you mentioned shale until there is a very compelling Uh, economic reason for people to deploy batteries so i think initially it it certainly is around you know some sentimentality or it's around uh the um desire to to sort of you know go away from from the utility or you know stay green or have perceived green cred or you know they like the tesla brand or whatever it might be uh but for for a very large market to to uh emerge on the residential side you definitely need better economics and and i think that's what we're seeing right now It, it still is Sort of stubbornly, only appealing to, uh, you know, people who are who are in that former category.
0: This podcast is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a world-leading provider of utility-scale energy storage solutions. As battery storage costs fall and performance steadily improves, the use cases for the technology, including longer-duration, flexible peaking applications, are expanding. Utilities are demanding more from storage. And that can mean changing the way a system responds to grid needs in real time. With Advanceon, AES can tune a battery for customers depending on their needs. I spoke with AES Energy Storage President John Zaranchik and asked him what tuning a battery system actually entails.
3: Ah, uh, well, you know, it, it's a lot of looking at what is the job to be done and, the, and a lot of data analytics. And so you are looking at, are you trying to maximize the life of the battery system? Are you trying to maximize the performance uh, of the system to the grid, Uh, finding that those change in different conditions on the grid so we can make our system be somewhat self-aware of changing conditions on the grid and move into different personalities. Um, And a lot of this is is programming, changes in algorithm and software, um, but it's driven by analysis and really understanding how the grid is working and, and, and what is needed to make the best performance.
0: So, how's the technology changed to allow you to do that? How, how have the use cases become more complicated and, and how's your platform evolved over time to meet them?
3: One of the things that's interesting is as like I was mentioning before, utilities are increasingly getting interested in longer duration and larger systems. As they do that, they're including more and more different types of use cases for that same system to do. And because the storage system could take on different personalities, Um, It can be programmed to do different things, particularly at where we've looked at um, making sure that it's available to be programmed to do different things based on parameters that might be changing all the time. I think that's kind of an interesting area, and it starts to border on how quickly does the system learn um, some things that it's doing, how many different distinct kinds of personalities do we want it to have, and how do those personalities need to interact with each other in, in real time. I think that's a lot of very interesting work that we're doing now with customers.
0: So managing battery storage is not just a technical test, it's also kind of a personality test.
3: (laughs) That's right, that's right.
0: The grid is changing, fast. And the ability to store energy for hours at a time opens up fresh solutions to the grid's most pressing issues. AES Energy Storage is helping utilities harness the power of battery-based energy storage to make the electricity system cleaner, more flexible, and more reliable and also give the grid a bit more personality. Visit aesenergystorage.com slash interchange to learn more.
1: So one of the things that I'm interested to chat with you about is seasonal energy storage, because most of the time when we talk about energy storage right now, battery storage, we're talking about, you know, even when we say long duration, we mean like 10 hours. Uh, at the most, right? Maybe we're talking about six hours. And one of the conversations we had uh, in a previous episode of this podcast with Jesse Jenkins was talking about what is going to be required for deep decarbonization. So when you get to really high levels of penetration of clean renewable energy on the grid, one of the issues that you face down the line is, uh, is that of seasonal differentials in production. So you have solar generating, for example, a lot more in the summer than it does in the winter. And you can't just solve that with four hours, six hours duration energy storage. Uh, that doesn't get you differences amongst seasons. And so that's been a concern for people who are trying to model out these deep decarbonization scenarios because they have to make up for that lost generation in the winter in that case. Uh, and oftentimes that ends up being you know, optimized for a a gas turbine or something like that, or even a baseload plant that might be coal with carbon capture or something like that. So the people who are uh, proponents of a really high penetration renewables future always throw in some version of seasonal storage. But but one, we don't really have a market for seasonal storage yet or an economic case for it. And two, I'm not clear on what technologies exist to provide that apart from, you know, driving a, a maybe pumped hydro or driving a rail car up a Hill or something like that. So is that something yeah. that you've spent a lot of time? Uh, on? Yeah,
2: I mean, I, broadly speaking, um, uh, y- yeah, I've started to spend a lot more time thinking about that, um, and, and e- even things like uh, pumped hydro or uh, you know pumped rocks or rail or whatever you want to call it uh, doesn't fulfill the need that's that's there um, uh, because those are really diurnal things. Um, you, you know, wh- when you're talking about seasonal shifting, you're talking about taking something. Th- in four months of the year, and shifting it to the opposite four months of the year, and um, you know, very few things are are really capable of doing that today. And and the the seasonal storage that we have today is is um, largely hydropower. Uh, it's the water in the reservoir, but it's also the snow which is in the mountains, which is melting over the course of summer. Right, that that's really the the seasonal um, storage that we have today. And you're right, there is nothing that's out there that that really uh, approximates the. Uh, the cost of it. Of course, the snow is free and the melting water is free and everything else. Um, So, uh, you know, as far as being able to address those challenges, I I definitely agree with with what Jesse said. There's, uh, you know, a distinct need for flexible base, I think is the term he used, um, for uh, these very deep uh, renewable penetration scenarios. And how you get that, um, you know, I think you need to sort of expand the aperture a bit and think about where all the embodied energy is. It's more than let's say some, uh, or could be more than, than let's say some, you know, chemical storage per se, you know, think about where all the energy just is in the world, um, and how it's used. Uh, and I think that those kinds of things, you know, start to become, uh, interesting as part of the solution, not, not as a complete solution, but, you know, something like 1% of the entire world's energy goes to production of, uh, ammonia, uh, ammonium. And, um, uh, you know, that's a lot of energy. Okay. Well, uh, could, could that be harnessed in a certain way? Um, to to make use of uh, uh, very deep penetration, renewable penetration scenarios.
1: Um, So is that a version of demand flexibility as opposed to energy storage in that you're talking about changing the volume of energy required to produce ammonium on a seasonal basis, which would then, you know, counteract the differential and renewable energy generation or is that actually using something like ammonium production as a means of energy storage?
2: Well I think it could be both. Um, but I, I think that those things need to be understood and, and mapped and, and you know our entire industrial society could be probably remapped in, in a lot, along a lot of these lines. and you know the way that we think about storage I think just needs to be uh, expanded a bit as opposed to there's a cell with a battery you know with a, with a chemistry inside and you have ion transport internally. Uh, there's just, in order to, to solve the challenges that we, that we have, um, I think you've, you've got to think creatively about, about all this stuff.
0: So what are some of the technologies, other technologies that are interesting to you? There's compressed air storage, there's power to gas, uh, hydrogen project- production. What are the sets of technologies that you think are available available? and worth pursuing yeah
2: i think power to gas is pretty interesting um, especially if you can get to something other than than just hydrogen um but but part of the challenge is scale here i mean we're we're talking about you know hundreds of terawatt hours potentially per year uh, for any industrialized nation i mean germany and france they they both collectively produce about you know 550 or so terawatt hours per year uh, of overall generation and and as uh, shale had mentioned uh, you know, the summer solar production to winters is quite extreme. It's six to one uh, in Germany. And so they sort of have the most exacerbated problem. Um, so they, I, I would say that, you know, from an industrial standpoint, that they've got to think very creatively about what all those solutions are. I, I don't have a perfect solution right now. Um, it's, it's part of why it's an interesting problem to think about. Um, but, uh, you know, thinking about the energy flows in, in general, um, and how you can affect those either from a demand side or from a you uh, sort of embodied energy standpoint um, is is I think uh, going to be a, a very interesting field uh, broadly speaking.
1: How do you think about? I know you spent a lot of time at Tesla, especially in the last couple of years, on policy and regulatory issues. And as, as we think about things like seasonal energy storage, the other concern I guess that comes up for me is whether the market is designed to incentivize that, even if it's something that we need. Because you know, say we just had. Uh, a, a great seasonal energy storage technology today, it's not clear to me that you could actually get that built in Germany uh, just because the market doesn't have a mechanism to to provide, to, to yield value from that apart from just sort of waiting for wholesale prices to go up in the times when there's less generation from solar. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you know as anybody in the energy storage field should not be shy about uh, engaging in in policy that's for sure uh, you know it can't be an area that, that you don't want to do um, so so I, I think that um, it's sort of a given that you're gonna have to go into uh, the markets that where where this makes sense um, and get the regulation put in place that that supports the approach overall uh, you know carbon pricing is is maybe it's the the thing that we're never going to get, but that would be sort of the, the most obvious way to, to deal with a lot of this stuff. Um, but you, but you're absolutely right. You're going to have to um, make sure that the structures are in place and, and the, getting the market redesigned, you know, the Indo-European project sense of it is at least they're, they're thinking about it today. Now the EU will take their time in getting something implemented, but you know, they are thinking about what it means to be the energy union uh, and how, uh, they can meet their their stated goals of of the commission for decarbonization and and even within the member states how each member state is thinking about it so we hear a lot about retirement of coal in in the UK for example um, broadly means that they're moving over to natural gas um, and and that gets you maybe halfway there to the goal uh, of a decarbonized grid but it doesn't get you all the way there
0: you talked in the beginning about being discerning in your career choices so this is clearly a very specific choice that you've made to focus on long duration storage. Um, why move from Tesla and a focus on lithium ion into something like long duration storage that is still so nascent and, uh, you know, in many cases unproven? What is the, the need that you're, I think you actually clearly defined the need, but what is it about the potential for deployment that has you so interested?
2: well i I think Stephen that your question sort of answers answers itself which is that it is nascent uh there are there aren't a ton of people thinking about it um, right now uh and and the markets really aren't well defined for it um you know Tesla's going to go do great stuff awesome stuff with lithium ion um, and the the sort of related markets and between the vehicles and and uh, that particular battery chemistry and and that approach um uh, and it's great i I, I have nothing but you know, phenomenal memories, of course, of my time and my colleagues at, at Tesla. Um, and, and I'm obviously still a huge fan. Uh It's just that for me personally, I, I wanted to go work on um, different things. And, and to tell you the truth, when I left, I didn't know that that was what I wanted to work on. Uh, in, in fact, I uh, sort of really considered other options um, all in the field of energy, but, um uh, you know, agriculture, water, different, different things. And uh, I found that, I, Maybe I've just been in storage too long, but I, I really couldn't put it down, um, and so started to think, uh, sort of with a blank sheet, what what the frontiers are for storage. Um, you know, I think the competition in lithium ion is going to be intense, and you know those markets are, I would say, pretty well characterized and understood. It's a it's a question of scale and cost at this point, um, but there are markets that lithium ion is just not going to be able to compete in, and and you know that's where I started to to take a look, and that's how I started to think about uh, this other market. So for me, it was just, you know, I I do want to. Sort of almost always be working on on the vanguard, you know, in, in the nascent markets, uh, you know, and be the one who's in there early and 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 really pushing pushing a market to what it could be.
0: I was really struck by something that you said in your conversation last December with Shale on stage when you guys talked about what storage is going to look like in twenty thirty. This was at our Storage Summit out in California, and you know, you implied that. 2030 really isn't that far off. That's three or four utility rate cases away. So the technologies that are being developed today and business models that are being developed today are very relevant when we think about how vendors, technology providers, service providers will work with utilities in the future. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? I was, I was just really struck by those comments that, you know, thinking about 2030 is actually kind of a short time frame in your
2: view. Well, I think it's important to understand it, it, the the counterparties here. And, and that's, that's really what I mean. I think for a technology, you know, 2030 technology company or for, you know, an, an entrepreneur, of course, 2030 feels like, you know, might as well be never. Um, but given the markets, uh, given these markets, um, where you have utilities who think in rate case cycles, um, it's important to sort of put that in their perspective, which is that it does feel like it, it's you know, almost here. Uh, so, so that was really the, sort of how I, I think about that issue is you know, there is gonna be a, a sort of impedance mismatch there between you know, mark, markets and, and the way that they move, especially this market and the way that it moves, you know, heavily regulated uh, versus uh, the technology providers. And, and you sort of have to trick yourself into, at least I do, um, into operating at that cadence uh, to, to talk about things in the right way to sort of set up uh, the entire problem of it. Um, so so I do think that that you know the, the storage technology vendors that are out there today um, do need to be working with utilities on their on their horizon right now uh, and and sort of working with the existing solution set uh, that that's in hand, but as much as possible sort of figuring out what, what comes right behind that.
0: Um, I, I can imagine a lot of vendors out there, some of the startups in the storage business, rolling their eyes and saying 2030 God I'm trying to sell a few systems now it is is that sort that statement that belief sort of a luxury of being at Tesla where you have Elon and therefore you and your team members thinking about multi-decade timescales um, because that's what's unique about Tesla so is that a product of working in that environment
2: uh, I'm sure to some extent um, and and certainly being in a place like Tesla is is a huge luxury for, for lots of different reasons, um, but uh, but for the reason you mentioned there, uh, Stephen. So I, I I can't disagree with that. Um, on the other hand, you know the entire industry has to think in those terms, and you, you look at the leaders in it, and, and they're doing just that, right? Um, AES is is of course thinking along those timescales, and um, you know all the other major vendors are also thinking about the, that time scale. I think if you're a startup, of course you, you can't you don't have that luxury. You're right. Um, and in that case, that can't be your focus, right? Your focus has to be getting into the market in a different way. Um, but it means that the industry overall uh, does need to be engaged at that level. And I think that there's some, you know, the trade groups are doing a much better job of that today or in a in, in recent period than they certainly were you know, going back five, ten years. I mean, that was a generation ago. But, but um, yeah, it just means that, that overall, as the industry uh, evolves, it, it also needs to, to be thinking uh, coherently about that time scale and, and with the counterparties it's working with.
1: So you talked to a fair bit about utilities and how utilities think about this stuff. And obviously they're a central player in decision-making on the grid and obviously operation of the grid, but there is still this question that keeps popping up in regulatory venues more than anywhere else of whether utilities are meant to be the ones who own and operate these assets and assets in this case could be broad. It could include generation, but it's also true of energy storage where you know, there's some cases where utilities are are owning and rate basing energy storage assets somewhere on the distribution grid. And there are other cases where a third party will do it. And the utility sends either price signals or sends um, actual market signals saying, okay, now I need you to do this if there's a contract in place. And I'm curious how you think about which of those models, utility ownership or utility sort of signal sending, uh, makes more sense in the long term or whether it's case by case based on some other factor.
2: yeah well, if we're talking about the United States then it certainly has to be a state by state consideration uh, just because of the regulatory environments um, can be so different. Uh, so so I think you'll you'll sort of see that evolve uh, and continue to involve evolve, evolve. Um, but uh, certainly I, I think that um, storage will become more and more just part of the infrastructure of of the utility um, uh, so what it owns in rate bases and so almost no matter what happens on the on the retail side of things, uh, storage can be a cost-effective uh, alternative, uh, non-wires alternative to the transmission distribution network. Um, and, and broadly speaking, that's where it's happening, right? You're seeing uh, energy storage compete in the power markets, not the energy markets, but certainly in the power markets. Um, and power markets, keep in mind, include four-hour capacity. Um, so so we can have that, you know, be part of uh, that consideration for the utilities. Uh, but but they'll start to see that, know there is that value there and it's quickly deployed and um, provides uh, more and more uh, functionality to the grid overall Uh, but in the areas where let's say that you do have a deregulated market and you want to be able to capture more value then uh, of course you've got to be able to uh, to ensure that that value can be accessed uh, let's say through through bilateral agreements um, uh, for uh, let's say participation in in the in the wholesale markets uh, by some third party utilizing that asset so those kinds of things do need to be worked out—the the multi-use um, uh, sort of regulatory structures uh, to enable to, the assets to be to be fully compensated for for what they have. Um, so I think you'll 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 see that sort of emerge in all the different ways that that uh, our states are idiosyncratic when it comes to to uh, the energy markets overall.
1: That's a final question on policy then, because uh, we've talked a couple of times about participation in the wholesale markets, and obviously there was this really sort of exciting glimmer of hope um late last year when the federal energy regulatory commission which regulates all the wholesale markets op, wholesale market operators in the US issued this noper which is an acronym um that was you know basically set up to ba- make all the isos and rtos figure out the rules to explicitly allow energy storage to participate which is something that hasn't happened in the past and has been a limitation for deployment of grid scale energy storage in particular in in a good swath of the country. Now we have some new FERC commissioners and it's not entirely clear where that's heading. Can you sort of divine, uh, where you think we're going in terms of wholesale market participation for energy storage, given the new makeup of FERC and just what the rules need to be in order for energy storage to play?
2: Yeah. I, uh, certainly cannot divine what's going to happen on the political side of things. So what, what's happening in, at the FERC, uh, you know, it's just going to play out. I think, but um, what what you're seeing is is plenty of pressure, and maybe more can be brought to bear. But um, nonetheless, uh, a pretty good effort at at the individual ISOs themselves um, by the various storage industry stakeholders to to get clarification on rules and to and to push for uh, market design change uh, where appropriate. So, um, you know, there are ongoing proceedings uh, for for storage that um, I'm pretty sure all of uh, all of the RTOS right now. And uh, you know you're getting direct interaction there. So while of course FERC following through on the Noper would be fantastic and and issuing very clear clear guidance around that, um, I don't think anybody's sitting on their hands uh, waiting for it. Um, And uh, you know there's some strong advocacy that's happening right now, uh, which um, which is needed no matter what. Uh, Even if the FERC did come out with with those clear rules, you you still got to be engaged and you still got to make sure that the final uh, market design is is truly reflective of of what's needed for storage.
0: I'm really keen on hearing your thoughts about technology evolution, particularly in lithium ion. Tesla in January announced that it was that it had developed the 2170 form factor cell, which is uh 21 millimeters by 70 millimeters. It uh Musk has said it was the the cheapest cell around the world, the high had the highest energy density. And Improvements across the industry have been fairly astonishing and have beat a lot of analyst expectations over the years. What do you see as the most compelling technology advances in lithium-ion right now, and and do you have a sense of where costs are headed?
2: Well, I think from a grid perspective, certainly, um, yes, it's very important, of course, with the cell costs and and what you're getting, you know, at that level. Um, and, and there's been uh, huge improvements there, uh, faster, of course, than anybody anticipated even going back one or two years. Uh, so I, I think that there's um, still some good runway there. You know, we continue to see pretty steady improvements, 3 to 5% per year, somewhere in that range, across all the figures of merit uh, as measured at the cell level. Um, and that's for, of course, cost, but also energy density and, you know, energy retention over life and those kinds of things. Uh, and that should continue. Uh, you know, getting a silicon anode is, of course, one, one of the next great um, things that, that is expected to come down the pipe here. Um, or solid-state batteries, maybe a little bit further beyond that. Uh, but when you're thinking about it from a grid perspective, of course, you have to consider the complete balance of system. And 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 today, <clears throat> with as much as costs have come down, uh, you're still seeing at least about two-thirds of the cost uh, for a grid-connected system be in the, in the non-cell cost. So that's your balance of plant. That's your interconnection cost, that's your installation cost, shipping, logistics. Uh, and so all of that needs to, to really come down and there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, I think we're already starting to see some compression, for example, on power electronics um, uh, and integrated system design um, do that. But, you, you know, you, you could get at least a big, as big a lift by, by paying attention to the non-cell costs as you can get just by paying attention to the cells.
1: And so in fact, that's, that's I think, under-recognized uh, in general. We we face this battle a lot when we show system price forecasts for energy storage, and they're declining, but they're not declining that fast. And people say, but the, back of the cost of batteries is falling you know, so rapidly, and indeed it is, but the problem is that the balance of system costs actually haven't been falling nearly at that same rate. So you do need... Innovations across all that other stuff in order to get system costs for energy storage down to the levels that everybody wants them to be at And so when we hear these really earth-shattering numbers, we're mostly referring to the cost of the cell um, Or the battery pack at the most and not the system.
2: Yeah, and 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 you see a fair amount of work done to to try and estimate where the floor really is on the on the cells Uh, You you don't see I haven't seen any work done at least published um, out there for public consumption uh... that tries to do the same for the non-sale cost uh, you know what is that what does the metal cost what does the uh... you know what are the basic uh... inputs cost uh, for the complete balance of system uh, i think that that's at least as as uh... important and interesting for the industry as as the cell stuff is
0: i want to revisit one other thing that you said during your conversation with shale on stage at our storage summit and you said that the important thing to keep in mind is that Storage will participate no matter what the structure of the market is. And no matter what path of regulation we take, you can come up with some sort of solution that is is going to allow us to integrate energy storage. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Are you talking about that sort of wide open market as a function of costs coming down? Is it just because storage is so diverse in terms of the applications it can fulfill? Help me understand what you meant by that.
2: Yeah, I mean that—that's essentially it. That that storage is such a flexible asset that um, there's almost no way to prevent it from participating in the market at this point, unless you specifically, you know, called it out in, in some regulation. Um, but storage, I, I've said in the past, is is in some many ways a Roschard test for people on the on the grid. And they see it and what they want to see. Um, you know, it looks like wires, or it looks like uh, uh, demand, or it looks like generation, or you know, sort of wh- whoever is in the, in the position viewing that asset, can, it can be whatever they want it to be um, and sort of reflects the values of the people that are looking at it. Uh, so it's in that context, again, because it, it is a load or it's generation uh, and it's flexibly cited in, in so many different ways, uh, it, it's just a phenomenal resource that, that probably is not fully, it definitely is not fully valued on the grid today, uh, but nonetheless, you can still start to access a lot of value um, as I mentioned, most of that value today is in the power markets, um, unless you're talking about things like islands, uh, where, where it does compete, you know, with solar for for energy. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, in the power markets, in the infrastructure markets, uh, that's where it's uh, competitive today and and getting increasingly
1: so. <laughs> I like the uh, energy storages Rorschach test. Metaphor, just because there's so many for energy storage. There's the like, energy storage is the Swiss Army knife of the grid. It's the holy
0: grail for the grid. I'm sure there's. As Catherine Hamilton, my co host on The Energy Gang, says, it's the bacon of bacon, the grid that right. makes everything better.
1: Right, right. But I like Rorschach test. That's a good one.
0: Yeah, me too. Are there any underserved markets, or, you know, aside from seasonal storage that we talked about? Are there any other sort of shorter duration markets that are underserved, maybe co-location with renewables or CNI markets and applications that um, are interesting to you?
2: I would say that the co-location with renewables is is not where people maybe thought it would be um, even a couple of years ago. Uh, And I think that's because um, one, there's no pressure to get that done. You can sort of do it do it offside and, and the markets maybe don't penalize let's say the renewable generators
1: well the uh, ITC and the PTC that's that's your reason to co-locate right now
2: yeah so, so that would would be the main driver um, but even still coming up with the cost proposition uh, for that co-location specifically is it's not obvious I would say um, you know I think in the future you, you may see regulatory commissions for example require uh, you know fully firmed renewables uh, but but we're not seeing anything like that you know, maybe the forecast errors are, are now being required to be at, at lower lower levels, um, and there are penalties now uh, in some jurisdictions if, if you're outside of that. Uh, so you can start to see what direction that might come, but but it's definitely not like every single solar site has has uh, uh, batteries affixed to it. Now, I think in the commercial space, that, that may change faster than in, let's say, the, the wholesale space um, where you would have a, a combination of, uh, you know, solar... Uh, producing the energy, and then and then batteries managing the, ma- the demand and making that pencil uh, to the consumer in a very transparent way. Uh, I would say
1: it is, is that. I was at this uh, utility conference last week and talked to a bunch of utility procurement folks about how they're thinking about renewables and energy storage as well and i think what you're going to start to see happen is we'll get a few announcements and there's been one or two already there will be a couple more coming up of surprisingly cheap solar plus storage ppas that utilities are signing and that is going to wake up a bunch of other utilities to the fact that they could either uh, mandate firm renewables in their procurement or if not mandate it then at least offer some you know, icing on the cake, some added benefit. And I think you're going to start to see a lot more of the utility RFPs that go out for renewables saying, you know, either this has to come with storage has to be firm or, you know, if you can deliver during these times a day or deliver with this, um, reliability during these times, you know, you'll, we'll give you a premium or something like that. And I think that's, what's going to jumpstart co-location a little bit more.
2: Yeah. And I would say that I'm going back maybe to the question of market design, broadly speaking, you know, to the degree that that the notion of capacity is is, I would say, more uh, robustly considered for for where the value needs to be, then you you definitely would see more storage uh, collocated with uh, with renewables. I'd say.
0: So I want to get one other thing out of the way that I know some people were curious about. You spent eight years at Tesla running a major division. In terms of stress level, I think that's probably like. Being president of the United States for two terms, right? At I, Tesla. I would,
2: I would not say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, uh, you know, how much golf did you do? Yeah, right, right. As long know. as you
0: were playing golf once a week. Inevitably, when someone of your stature leaves a company like Tesla during a time of transition, you know, Tesla bought Solar City, and people speculate about what's going on in the company. You did make it pretty clear that it was just kind of time to take a breather and make a conscious decision about the next. Piece of your career, right? It wasn't anything specific to Tesla. Is there anything you want to say about that transition?
2: Uh, no, I. I mean, I didn't. Tesla was a exciting place to be the entire time I was there. It was fantastic, um, and and you know everybody there is everybody who lasts anyway is a sort of an endurance athlete, right? You sort of operate at a pretty high level for a long time, and and you don't really think about it too much. Um, at the same time, you know I, I've got three young children, two of whom were born while I was at Tesla. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that it's unavoidable to, to think about that part of it, of course. And, um, you know, I did want to take some, some personal time and I, I definitely did that. So that was, that was nice, but it's not like I was burnt out per se. I mean, I, you know, I, I love thinking about these issues. This is, this is the only thing I, I want to work on, uh, is energy broadly speaking. And, you know, apparently storage is it for me. Um, so I, I always was energized. It's not like, uh, you know, the place ground me down to, to a nub or anything like that. Uh, it just was, you know, personally time for me to, to move on.
0: So you've still got storage on the brain in a big way.
2: <laughs> I, can't, I can't seem not to.
0: <laughs> Mateo Jaramillo, this was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for, for joining us. We learned a lot. Uh,
2: my pleasure, Stephen. Thanks to you and Shale for having me.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week's Interchange. Thanks to AES Energy Storage for their partnership on our public launch. Visit them at com slash interchange. If you like this show, find us on iTunes and give us a rating and review. Pass along a recommendation to a friend while you're at it, and shout at me and Shale on Twitter for story ideas. If you're listening to this On the Energy Gang feed, we'll be back with a normal episode next week. We'll catch you then. I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation.